Thanks for being here today. The Parsha is Devarim, the beginning of Deuteronomy. And let's say our uh, blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who fills the universe, for giving us mitzvot uh, through which to connect with you, and therefore giving us the mitzvah of studying words of Torah. So Moses is like 119 and 11 months old now at the beginning of Deuteronomy because ostensibly the whole, the whole Deuteronomy is one oration that takes place, say, in the last, that last, the last weeks of his life. But as it says at the end of, the very end when he passes away, his eyesight was not dimmed nor his vigor, um, uh, had nor his vigor had been slowed down, so that's why we wish um, in the Jewish tradition people that they should live to 120, but not 120 like like 120 like Moses. That's what's behind the rest of that, because I know plenty of people who don't want to live to 120 because they don't have their vigor. So I want to bless us all with much vigor and. Uh, inner enthusiasm and well-being until 120. <clears throat> so um, just to, um, again, frame where we are, Deuteronomy in, in Greek, which is its name in English as well, means the repetition of the law, Deuteronomos, because Moses is recapping uh, everything that happened during the 40 years of wandering, but also especially because the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy. So hence the name repetition of the law. Uh, but its Hebrew name is Devarim because of the first few words of the Parsha. That's how every book is named. And Devarim means words. So the Hebrew name is the Book of Words. And I've taught about this before, but, you know, I trust myself. I was reflecting and studying, and this is where my attention kept coming back to. So I find I'm never tired of, um, of um, oh, traveling through this, this theme again. Uh, when you consider that Moses at the burning bush, if you recall, uh, says um, to God, when God says, here's your mission, Moses says, uh, excuse me, uh, oh, there it is. Please, my Lord, be Adonai, Lo ish dvarim anochi. This is an exodus at the burning bush. Um, he's, gotten his, he's gotten his instructions and his first response is, oh, please, my Lord, I am not a man of words. And then the rest of the verse says, not now, not ever. I am heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. 
So that is how Moses describes himself at the burning bush. And so I just never get tired of reflecting on what happened. What was Moses's path of transformation? From being someone who said, I am not a public speaker. <laughs> uh, but much more deeply than that, I'm not a communicator, right? To, by the end of his, he's now, he's now uh, uh, at the end of his journey and he finds words. He doesn't just find words. And this is what I wanna talk about today. Uh, I'd like Gwen, ask Gwen to put up the first few verses of the Parsha. And again, if this teaching's familiar to you, it's familiar to me, but I seem to never get tired of it. So I think it has value. Here is how the book begins. These are the words that Moshe spoke to all Israel in the country across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plains near Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Lavan, Chaterot, Dizahav, this is the prologue. Eleven days it is from Chorev, by the route of Mount Seir, going by Kadesh Barneha. So that's where they are physically. And it was in the 40th year, in the 11th new moon, on day one after the new moon, that Moshe spoke to the children of Israel according to all that Yudhevav had commanded him concerning them. And this was after he had struck Sihon, king of the Amorites, who sat as the ruler in Cheshpon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who sat as ruler in Ashtarot, Edre. Um, okay, so that's a prologue. Here we are. I just want to say that later in this Parsha, which contains a lot of, I would say, folklore, um, as well as recounting, because Moses is going to recount everything that happened since they left Egypt. They tell the story of Og, the king of Bashan, that he was a descendant of the giants. And they still, to this day, have his metal bedstead, which is um, uh, nine cubits long and four cubits wide. So his bed is, did I get that right, Ellen? His bed is uh, nine cubits, that's uh, 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide. So that shows you how big Og was. But meanwhile, I just had to tell you that. I like picturing that bed, that bed frame that people would come to get uh, their picture taken next to. Okay, verse five. In the country across the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moshe set out to explain this instruction saying, and that's where we're going to focus. But Ever Hayarden, on the far side of the Jordan, literally Transjordan, Ever Hayarden, that's how it got its name in modern times. But Eretz Moab, in the land of Moab, and here's the phrase, Ho'il Moshe Be'er, Et HaTorah Hazot. Moses Ho'il. Ho'il means undertook. Moses undertook Be'er to explain this Torah. So this is why Moshe is now Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher, uh, 
not just Moses the prophet, but also in Deuteronomy, Moses becomes Moses the teacher because he is undertaking to interpret and explain the Torah to all the assembled. Now this is important because he'll be recounting the journeys and then later in Deuteronomy, the laws uh, that they are to follow. But these are the people who didn't leave Egypt. They were born in the wilderness. This is the 40th year. Um, when, uh, 38 years ago, when in the debacle of the scouts coming back from the land and the people rebelling and wanting to go back to Egypt, God declared they would all die in the wilderness and only their offspring would enter the Holy Land. So now it's the 40th year. And indeed, as the Parsha will tell us later, there are only three alive who left Egypt, um, at least as adults, right? Uh, there may be children, and those are as, as um, uh, autonomous adults, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And Caleb, and Caleb will enter the land, Joshua will take over from Moses, and Moses, in just a few weeks, will not enter the land, but will pass away. So Moses is explaining the Torah to this new generation, right? So this is a new task. This isn't bringing them out of Egypt, which he did, so that it was a firsthand experience for everyone. This is explaining the Torah to them. That makes Moses the first teacher in our tradition and the greatest teacher. And I just wanted to say that. So I wanna zero in on this beautiful word, be'er. Be'er means to explain. But a be'er, which is spelled exactly the same way, is, means a, a well. Uh, uh, Abraham dug wells. Isaac dug wells. Jacob meets Rachel at the well. The, uh, uh, Moshe meets Zipporah at the well. The well is I mean, we can imagine in, um, in, the, in the desert lands around Israel and in the, that wells were the hub of life. And so the metaphor of well becomes very powerful um, in, in ancient Jewish thought, just as we know that water, it, and Miriam at the well, thank you, Myrna. Um, um, so uh, there's a, I, I read a whole article about all the love things that happen at wells in the Torah, all the love meetings, all the, so the well is a place where love springs up, the well is the place to meet, and the well is the place where the water, where you dig, and mayim chayim, living water, wells up, and you can drink from it. That beautiful word, welling up. So um, the Sfat Emet, the Hasidic teacher that I love studying so much, in the late 19th century, he, he did his teachings, um, teaches that uh, it, this phrase, Moses undertook to explain the Torah, you'll understand when I, as we keep talking, that we could also 
interpret this as the Torah welled up in Moses. And so um, I, wanna, I want us to focus today on that metaphor for each of us of where does our inspiration come from? Where does our teaching come from? Where does our wisdom come from? Oh yeah, the word well, meaning good or satisfactory, uh, says Susan. And Joan says, her son-in-law, the rabbi, everyone should have one, uh, created a program in Detroit called The Well, where he brought 20, 30-year-olds together in social groups for Jewish learning and community and made some shidduchs. Perfect metaphor. Uh, your son-in-law is uh, doing a good job there. Um, so I want to follow the Spot Emmett's teaching with you today and ask, um, uh, ask uh, Gwen to put up an image that I uh, prepared. Yes, and Cynthia said, as a verb to well up, well up with emotion. Where is it coming from? That's the beautiful question. Can everyone see that? Uh, if you want, uh, you want to enlarge it a little bit, uh, Gwen, but it's fine. I see it well. Okay, I think it's just fine. Um, I can't enlarge it because it's as tall as my screen. Um, no, on, my, on my iPad, I can pinch out and make it bigger. People Don't worry. Don't worry. I think everyone can see it on their screen. Otherwise, I can show portions of it. No worries. Okay. So the teaching from the spot Emmet that inspires me goes like this. You see the two Hebrew words below. Bor, bor which should be spelled in English B-O-R, and be'er. One has a vav, or just an o vowel. The other has an extra letter, the aleph, in the middle. A bor is a cistern, a pit. Um, um, a bor ma'im is a cistern, a holding tank for water. And be'er is a well. What is the difference Oh, let me see what uh, Gail said. Does the word also contain the word for light? So to explain is to illuminate, and Moses is a light. Well, it does have the letters Aleph Resh in them, which are Or, which is light. So you're on a roll, Gail. It's not an, it's, it, we are playing, we are going to play with letters today. So the answer is yes. Not etymologically, but certainly midrashically and interpretively. Um, so a cistern, a holding tank, the Spadamit teaches, is a um, closed system. You fill it and it holds the water. You draw the water from it. And then at some point, the water is gone. A be'er is an open system. You dig down, you reach the aquifer, the underground stream, the water wells up, you draw the water out, and more water fills the well again. 
so he teaches that, um, well, this is sort of now getting into my interpretation. Uh, let's see. Joshua said, putting an Aleph in the middle opens up the sacred empty space from which all energies emerge, like the Japanese concept of Ma, precisely. The Aleph in Hebrew is a letter that we can explore forever. The Aleph is the letter that opens us from being a closed system into what's truer, which is that we actually are not a closed system. We are a well. We are a conduit. We are alive because we touch the source of life, because it infuses us with life. Anyone who thinks they're a closed system is deluded, right? But we believe our delusions sometimes. And if you believe your delusions and you think you're all dried out and you've got nothing left and you've never ever, you've completely pers been persuaded that it's all up to you, then you're dried out and you have nothing left. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, there's the symbol. Thank you, Joshua. That's so interesting. The symbol for Ma, it refers to an open gate. If you look in the chat and you, your eyes are good enough, you'll see this little Japanese symbol. Um, that's beautiful. An open gate with the sun in the middle. Um, Joshua, is Japanese... Uh, uh, are the Japanese, um, uh, uh, um, they're not letters, they're, they're, they're pictographs, they're symbols. They're characters. Mm -hmm. They're characters. So do they, um, do they all have original sort of visual interpretations? They do, and that all comes from the Chinese originally. They're all pictures and they all have these sort of ancient roots, often referring to things that people used to live with in the community and uh, meanings grew out of that. Um, yeah, so it's a gate um, and then with the character of the sun in the middle. So the idea of the sun coming through the gate. Um, but Ma has a lot of applications, and I actually just wrote an article about it that's about to be published because it's used in music a lot to refer to leaving silences. Okay, Joshua, are you familiar with the Aleph in that regard? I'm becoming, I'm now put connecting the dots and going back and being because like, oh, this sounds a lot like Aleph. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot like Aleph. We're going to talk about this. That is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Blaze, I'm going to read your poem in a moment. Um, but first, I just want to say that also the Hebrew alphabet was originally um, uh, pictographs. And that the Aleph, um, for instance, the Bet, uh, that's a good one to use because it's staring right at you on the screen, um, comes from Bait, which means house. And you can see how even the squared letters of the, this is not the early Hebrew alphabet, this is the one we've inherited is only 2,000 years old. So um, by then, Hebrew was already an ancient written language. And 
Of course, the, the script kept changing, but you can see what's left of a house in the bet, for example. So yes, it's the same in, in Hebrew. Also, Avigail's here. Uh, I can plug her book, Letters from Heaven. I was reading it this morning, Avigail. Spiritual Guidance from the Hebrew Alphabet for Every Day of Your Life. She has some great teachings about each letter. So there. Um, and I was reading it today. I just wanted you to know. Uh, okay, let me pause and um, uh, read the poem that Blaze put in there. The discussion meaning of well brings to me new meaning of the David White poem, The Well of Grief. I'm going to read it. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink. Beautiful. The secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering. Uh, glimmering. Uh, the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. That's right. You have to dive down even into the, even into the waters of grief. That would be the metaphor of allowing your tears to flow that you've been resisting so that you can touch the source because the source of tears is also the source of joy. Thank you. Avigal has copies for sale on Amazon and in her Woodstock home. Thank you for sharing that, Blaze. Um, I see there's someone in the waiting room. Go ahead. Go ahead. The title of the poem is The Well of Grief, Joe. Okay, so Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet and the letter that has no sound. Unless you put a vowel marking on an olive, you can't vocalize it. Its sound is silent. It opens the alphabet. All of language flows from the silence of the Aleph. There's a teaching that uh, Abigail puts in her book that the Aleph is silent. The next three letters are Bet, Gimel, and Dalit. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, right? Bet, Gimel, and Dalit spell a word, Beged. Beged means clothing. The world is the, the Aleph, the vivifying language, the vivifying sound of creation, which is the sound that precedes all shape and form, is clothed in the rest of the alphabet. So playing with words, which is the Hebrew way, Beged, clothing, if the Aleph infuses creation, then creation, as our mystics understand it, are garments of God. Everything physical is a garment 
a, a clothing for the inexhaustible energy that creates our world at every moment. Right now we can get into physics as well. When does a light wave become a particle? What, what the heck is this? Right? Is it just gross matter? We clearly we're not. Clearly we're animated. What animates us? In the Jewish mystical tradition, it's the Aleph. Beged also means bagat, which means to be a traitor, traitor, or to, um, what's, what does a traitor do? Um, live a, to, to be a, to, bagad is to, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the other word. Anyway, if we live our lives without acknowledging the Aleph, we become traitors to the source of life. And we become closed, pretend closed systems as opposed to true understanding that we are, each of us, digging a well, tending a well, so that, the, so that our soul and our being can be a conduit for teaching. Rebecca Plasker says, Rabbi, in the stone I'm reading, the bet with an ah vowel under it, so it reads bay, uh, with an a vowel, bay air. Oh, yes, yes. Bay air is to explain, it, he explains. Bay air is a well. Um, so they're, they're, uh, they're um, uh, vocalized differently, but they have the same letters. And if you remember, Rebecca, in the Torah scroll, there are no vowels. I should tell everybody this. The, the vowel markings in, in Judaism with which we learned to read Hebrew uh, were not invented until the sixth or seventh century of the common era. Uh, they were invented under the influence of Arabic and uh, after and and the, Ju the 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 Jewish scholars thought that this that the tools of Arabic were incredibly useful tools, and so the vowel systems were invented for Hebrew so that they could be clarified. We could know clearly how to pronounce each word. However, until then, it had been an oral tradition, and the way the rabbis prior to that interpreted Torah, and we do to this day, is you could you could read a word in more than one way. Which is why when I say the Torah welled up in Moses, I'm not just being cute or poetic. This is how Torah is interpreted. By, by the fact that there are no vowels, you are liberated to read the text in multiple ways. Abigail wrote, Aleph is the primal energy of the universe derived from an ox, the primal energy source in the ancient world. That's right. Aleph comes from the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew word for ox. And the ox was certainly primal energy, nicely done. Gwen says, I've been studying the changes after the temple was destroyed. Yavne can be read Yibone. Perfect example. Um, the uh, rabbis reestablished themselves after the destruction of Jerusalem in a town called Yavne, where they where they rebuilt the Jewish tradition. And you can read Yavne with different vowels as Yibaneh, which means it will be built. 
So that there are countless puns like that in Hebrew that are more than puns. It's sacred wordplay. Wendy says, a silent Aleph gives us a space to find and create our own voices. Perfect. That's what I wanted to share with you today to get our poetic and associative and it's just so rich. Don't you feel it just being juicy in that way? Um, that's where I wanted to go today so that we feel ourselves uh, inhabited by the silent Aleph. The teaching of the rabbis about, the mystical teaching of the rabbis about the Ten Commandments is that the first word of the Ten Commandments is Anochi, I am the Lord your God. I am Anochi, Adonai, I am the life unfolding your God who brought you out of the house of bondage, right? First, and that word is Anochi, which means I, like Ani, but more, more formal. Um, and there's a beautiful spinning of the question, what did it mean to hear God's voice at Mount Sinai? Um, does God have a voice as we understand it? And one of the main sort of streams of interpretation is no, God doesn't have a voice, a sound, audio waves. God is what precedes everything and infuses everything, makes everything possible. So all that God said was the Aleph of Anochi. And the rest is what we received through our limited, sometimes faulty, but worth tending to wells. There's a saying in, um, there's a passage in Genesis where it says Isaac redug his father's wells because they had gotten stopped up. So again, this becomes a spiritual understanding of Isaac wanting to go to his, in order to um, inherit what his father bequeathed to him spiritually, Isaac has to redig the wells because they'd gotten stopped up. The beautiful metaphor. Joan said, the bet is a house to build upon this book Torah with our explanations. Nicely said. And of course, there's a famous uh, Jew, ancient Jewish story about Olive saying, why don't I get to start the Torah? Bet gets to start the Torah. Bereshit. In the beginning, Bereshit. And God says, it's okay. When I get, we get to the Ten Commandments, you're going to have your moment. And the further teaching about that is that the bet, if you can see it on the screen, as many of you might remember, is closed on three sides, but opens in the direction of Hebrew. So before the beginning was Aleph. But what we get to read on the page and, and study starts with bet. And so that's why the Torah begins with a bet. Uh, the bet is that upon which the Aleph is built by turning it and adding the Yud. Lovely. So now the calligraphic tradition, we just have a field day with this beautiful Aleph. 
So that's why I wanted to have this nice graphic on your screen. You can all see it, right? It's a lovely graphic of an olive. An olive is constructed of a vav, diagonal, a yod, and a yod below. So again, our pictorial and imaginative uh, brains can really have fun with this. Yud, I'm, there's not one answer to this, right? Now, welcome, whatever you write in the chat. One interpretation is that we know that Yud is also understood to be in tradition as just a point, the, the iota in Greek, the smallest letter. So it's certainly a yin and yang here of some kind because Yud also means, Yud's original pictograph meaning is Yad, hand. A yud, a yud comes from a yad, a hand. And so it's understood that a hand from above is reaching to a hand from below. Like uh, Michelangelo, I suppose. <laughs> and the vav in Hebrew, a vav is a hook. And so vav. And you know what, when you speak Hebrew and you use the word, v, the letter V before a word, what does it mean? It means and. So Vav is the connector. So the understanding of the letter Aleph is that God is reaching to us and we're reaching to God. We're mirroring the divine and the Vav is connecting us. Balance, mm-hmm. Um, so there's that beautiful pictorial image um, of, of these two yudim reaching towards each other. Now, if we go further, the numerical value of the letter Aleph is one. Ah, Ellen wrote, oh, Upper Yud, transcendent divine. Lower Yud, the imminent divine. Circle surrounding the... What did you mean there? Well, as the circle, when you were talking about the yin-yang, I, I see the circle around the whole Aleph that doesn't have to stay exactly there. It's, it's more fluid. And the yin yang is is always there, but it's I don't it's not necessarily upper and right. That's right. Which way is up in a in an olive? It can it could just be it's something that's uh, it's describing a relationship. Yes. Mm -hmm. So lower would be imminent here with us. Upper would be transcendent. Or yin yang can be fire inside of water. Thank you, Paul. Um, and water inside of fire. So, um, um, the numerical value of Aleph is one. That's not too mysterious, right? If, it's, if, it, if Aleph is the creative energy of God, 
out of which the multiplicity of the alphabet comes and therefore creation, because in Judaism, the world is created through speech. Um, but the Aleph has no sound. But the Aleph, without the Aleph, there is no rest of the alphabet, right? So we're in this fascinating place to contemplate. Do we see the hidden source when our well strikes the aquifer? We don't see it. We just see the water welling up. And it's the same. We don't see or hear the Aleph. Yet without experiencing the Aleph, there is no creation. And so, um, and I'll just uh, read Gail's comment uh, and Paul's, and I like this poetic kind of ping-ponging around. As Midrash, the first manifestation of Aleph in the physical realm is light. The transition from the source into our world, the bridge. As in the Japanese and in the word for well, Joshua, you have a comment? Sorry, no, Cora had just walked into the room. Well, Cora, this is her, this is her, uh, uh, I know. We're talking about letters. I know, I was asked, Joshua just pointed that all out to me. Yeah. Cora's, Cora's a master calligrapher. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> Paul says, Aleph, the sound of breath that opens and calms the heart. Thank you, Paul. <sighs> Okay, so now let's play with numbers because each letter is a number and Aleph is one. But when you make an Aleph, you make two Yuds, Yuds are 10 each. It's the 10th letter. Vav is the sixth letter. Yud plus Yud plus Vav equals 26. 26 is the numerical value of Yud, He, Vav, He the unpronounceable essential name in Hebrew. So mysteriously, if you deconstruct an Aleph into its component strokes, it adds up to the name of God. That's crazy to me, I love that. I even went, I went further, which is that when you spell the letter Aleph, Aleph Lamed Peh, okay, if it's F, or P, it's still the letter P, depending on whether you have a, an emphasis on the, uh, a, 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 um, a the which means an emphatic mark in the letter, like in the bet here on the screen, that makes the V into B in Hebrew. Same letter, just vocalized a little differently. So, P, Aleph, Lamed, P, spells Aleph. Um, Backwards, Pe Lamed Aleph spells Pele, which means wonder. A pele is, is a wonder or to wonder, to be amazed. I love that. And then I read that if you add up Aleph, Lamed, and Pe, 1, 30, and 80, it adds up to 111, one, one, one. We can't get away from it. I just thought that was really beautiful, really beautiful. So here we are contemplating this magnificent letter.
the letter we can't pronounce. A letter that if we don't acknowledge as existing, leaves us in a desert of crass materiality, which we then mistake for the whole of existence. If we do not figure out how to discern the Aleph animating everything, we live in a world lacking life. We become a cistern, a closed system. In order to have life well up in us, through us, and fill our consciousness, we have to be able to discern the Aleph. We have to dig our well. We have to tend it. We have to make sure the water is flowing up into it from the unseen source. There's another beautiful teaching. The word truth is emet. If you take the aleph off of emet, you get the word met, which means death. And of course, that becomes the origin of um, the whole story of the golem. Uh, the the human the proto the the proto human that the um, Rabbi Lo of Prague the Maharal creates and writes the word emet on the forehead. Um, this is where most mystical lore in Judaism comes from about magic. Um, the reason uh, he, the Maharal of Prague, this great rabbi, was able in the legends to animate clay was because he knew how to utter the name of God. He had found the secret language of creation and learned it. The same is true of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was famous because he was a master of the good name, which means that in his mystical elevation, he had tapped how to create with words. There's even a saying, in Aramaic, abracadabra, which means I create as I speak. So there's this whole, this whole kind of uh, a branch of the tree of Jewish mysticism that believes that language actually has the power to create if you, if you learn the secret of the Aleph, right? If not, the, when it's time to time for the golem to be killed, um, the Maharal wipes the Aleph off its forehead. And so it becomes met, which means a corpse also, and is returned. God created us out of the um, clay of the earth and breathed the breath of life into us and we became a living being. Wendy says, oh, um, uh, Blaze says, Joan, okay, I got, I got to go up the chat. This is great. Uh, Joan says, the name that can be spoken is not the true name, exactly. That's why this lore is uh, considered magical, in my opinion. And Blaze says, lacking life equals lacking breath. Lacking breath is lacking life. Every breath is consciousness. 
Wendy says, wells can dry up. We also need to learn how to find the resilience to dig new wells when we feel beaten down. Right, Wendy. That's why, um, that's what, what gets called now spiritual practice is, which is a fancy word, means how we tend to our souls so that we, we, we nurture resilience which is another way of saying nurturing our connection to the living waters. Paul says from his expertise, the bubbling well is number one kidney, the water point under the ball of the foot. Oh, let's all touch that point. Drawing energy from mother earth. Fire and water is to draw yang chi out of kidney water. This chi energy for spiritual sexual creativity. There's, this, there's yet another language, a fully developed language of energy medicine, right? That's what Chinese medicine is, it's energy medicine. Roni says, I don't wanna brag, but I took the Hebrew Regents. I did too, Roni, my French was terrible, so I took the Hebrew Regents. And I love the mysticism in the language of Hebrew, so do I. In other words, there, no, we don't study the English alphabet and then immerse ourselves in each letter in order to learn how to read right? English, and I'm not down on English at all, uh, but when you study Hebrew, you study the meanings of the letters in a way that is just the Jewish way, because the letters are the building blocks of creation. If you read the um, uh, Sefer HaYetzirah, that, that's, for us, the language is sacred. That's why wordplay is such a central part of Jewish life. Rob says, the Aleph opens us up to God's words that follow. But it's the space before and between and after the words where God resides. Miles Davis, Rabbi Miles Davis said, the space between the notes was more important than the notes themselves. Ellen, what's called the bubbling spring? What was being said um, that place on the bottom of the foot where, where we... Oh, it's known as the bubbling spring. It's known as the bubbling spring. Well, I know how some good uh, pressure points on my feet revivify me. It's amazing, isn't it? I want to focus on Rob's comment um, uh, for a minute about the space between the letters, because we also know that... Um, in rabbinic teachings, going back a couple thousand years, it's understood that the physical Torah is called our black letters on white parchment, but that they are a uh, manifestation of the supernal universal Torah, which is understood to be black fire on white fire. And that the white fire is considered in Jewish interpretive tradition to be as or more important than the black fire that occupies it. So yes, it's a shim language. Think of language as shimmering on the page or as something that you could take a word and open it up. And I love thinking about this. Open up the word and then peer into it and see the cosmos. You know, these kinds of metaphors. 
language is our tool. But if we forget that the language is animated by something wordless, then we will, our words will become dry and start cracking off, you know, too many words. But when our language is animated by our quest, by our searching, by our discernment, then the language is sort of, the word, the letters kind of start bubbling and bursting and jumping on the page. <sighs> Roni Stanley said, Bobby Weir said his favorite sound is the sound of air. Nice, nice. You know, the word for, and uh, Paul said, Hebrew was sacred language, not the case for English. That is true. Not, it's a, English is not understood as sacred in the way that Hebrew is and the way that other languages are as well in different cultures. But this, this one's ours. What else starts Carol with something. Carol had something she wanted to share. Carol, please speak. I just can't figure out how to encapsulate it to, uh, to, into a chat. But, but in my work with actors, the hardest thing to convince people to do is what I call give themselves silent breaths. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as, and it's why people tend to rush and people tend to, they, they, don't think they're, they don't think they're really acting if they're not talking. And what happens with one or two silent breaths is you just go, talk about wells, you just go right straight to however, the, whatever those words are meaning to you at that exact moment. So those words come alive in, in a way that, that, that you can't be prepared for, which of course is frightening to some people and why they, why they avoid it so much. But it is the richest, so that this, this idea of we don't acknowledge the Aleph is, is all. <laughs> That's right. If we don't dive deep into those waters, if we don't wait, if we don't, that's right. Isn't it perfect? Isn't it beautiful? The essence of, of improvisation in life and all else. What, to, what do you do when there is nothing to do? To just be? Indeed. To wait. To wait for inspiration. Oh, God, is that hard to wait. But here's Moshe, because we're almost out of time. So this, this hour, here's Moshe undertaking to explain the Torah to the people of Israel. He's learned how to wait for it to well up in him. He's learned how to, to do that. What do we have to practice? We have to practice faith. And I use that word not as faith in an outcome. Remember, that's, that's, that's an understanding of faith that doesn't understand the Aleph, right? That's a word that is corrupted by its lack of connection to the source. 
Faith is waiting and trusting, because faith means trust, by the way, for the words to come, for the gesture to be present, for the willingness to wait and just be until incredible exercise. Wendy says, finding our voice and passion gives us courage to speak. Thank you. Maybe Moses needed these years to learn and believe this before he could become a more confident teacher. Thank you. Yes, so he didn't prattle on just because he was afraid of the silence. Oh boy, to abide in your heart. For me, this is what faith is. Practicing faith means tending your well and trusting that the water will come up at the right moment to animate your next action or speech. Ironically, our most realized self, and again, we know this from our spiritual studies, our most realized self is the one that doesn't rely on our ego to move us, but instead waits and puts our ego in service of the inspiration that we trust will come. It ain't simple, even though it is simple in words. It is what it means to have Torah well up in us. Here's what I wrote at the end of a piece I wrote about this. Moses finally becomes the well the teachings flow from his lips. His oration reaches its climax at the end of Deuteronomy, when he wants to imbue the children of Israel with this understanding. Remember what he says in this passage, that they too are wells and not cisterns, and will be able to continue to connect with the divine after Moses is gone. At the end of his speech, he says, this teaching, this Torah is not in the heavens that you should say who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us and impart it to us that we may do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who among us can cross the other side of the sea and get it for us and impart it to us that we may do it? No, Moses says, the word is in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Across a lifetime of struggle and service, Moses came to trust and to allow inspiration to flow through him. Imagine that first moment at the burning bush, how disoriented he was. He found his voice and his words resound in the world to this day. He also left us with a charge as all great teachers will do. Do not think that creative and moral inspiration is some limited resource secreted in some inaccessible external source. No, that source flows all around you and within you, waiting to be tapped, ready to well up in your being 
and flow out into the world. That's our letter for today. Wishing you all the patience to remain silent. And then, uh, Paul said, after a long retreat in the desert with Jethro and Sipara, 40 more years with the children of Israel, I would hope so. Yeah. When you read the Torah, it wasn't a joyride. <laughs> I hope so too. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my soul be acceptable to you. Thank you. And Roni says, I'm sorry I was late. Are we no longer studying the Torah? You missed how we got into this, Roni. But sometimes when you study a passage of Torah, you wind up honing in on just one word and then one letter. So this will be recorded and posted, and you can read it on the Woodstock Jewish Congregation website. You can hear it again, and you'll hear what you missed. Meanwhile, I bet you got the message. So thanks, everybody. <laughs>